Let's just say that in chapter 13 is the expiration of the promised land. But they report back that, oh no, the people there are scary. Starting from 14 verse 1, I'll read through the 12. That night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt, or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land, only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we pass through and explore is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. And we do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. So do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I performed among them? I'll strike them down for plague and destroy them, but I'll make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Thanks, Steve. Pray that um, as we look at mainly at chapters 13 and 14, let's pray that we'd understand the way God works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to hear your word. Please speak to our hearts, we pray. Please make us aware of who we are and of your grace and mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How's your heart? That's the question to be thinking about this morning. Years ago, I went to the optometrist and I was quite surprised to discover that the optometrist could tell me what my heart was doing, what my heart was like. The optometrist, um, they did one of those tests where you sit your face in the cradle and you look straight ahead, you look to the right, look to the left, and she even took a photo of the back of the eye. And as she did that, it's like this microscope thing lets her look into the inside of your skin, below the surface, so that she could see what your heart's up to. I'm sure you've had the same test. It's a bit spooky. Our eyes, they're like this window into our body. When you look across the back of the eye, you can see the blood, the blood vessels close up. You can, in effect, make a pretty good judgment of what's happening with the heart, whether there's cholesterol issues or blood pressure, uh, whether you're experiencing stress, just by looking into your eyes, at the back of your eye. Our eyes, they're this window into our body that allow the optometrist to see what's in our heart, and they take a photo and next time you come back they can compare notes. This part of the Bible, it does the same sort of thing for us. It's like as you look at this part of the Bible and you understand these verses, it's like you, yes you're looking at the nation of Israel, but what you're seeing is what's in your heart as well. We see ourselves more clearly as we think about this part of the Bible and as we understand these verses. Um, Looking at this part of the Bible, yeah, it shows us the state of our heart, but I'm not thinking the, the organ that is in our body. I'm thinking the part of us that makes us who we are, the part of us where all the emotions come from, the thing that drives us and our ambitions and our desires. This passage, it's like a microscope that shows us what we really are deep inside. 
where these things matter. And you may not like what you see as you look in. But as the passage was read, yeah, it's tempting to think, oh, it's way over here, it's a long time ago, it's these people of Israel doing these things, these strange people. But the New Testament book of Hebrews, it's the passage which, which is the book that gives us the microscope, gives us the way to filter what we're seeing, gives us the lens through which to see these Israelites. And as you look through this lens, you start to see yourself and the state of your own heart. Um, we're meant to be covering chapters 13 to 19, but we won't. We'll concentrate on chapters 13 and 14 and just bits of that. But these are key parts of the whole book of Numbers, where we see God's people disobey and refuse to go into the land of Canaan. The writer of the Hebrews picks up on these things. Looking back, the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 3, verse 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's your magnification lens. That's the perspective that you need to see numbers clearly as we look at this chapter. And the question behind that we're thinking about is, how's your heart? The first point to make is we we should never underestimate the hardness of the human heart. Have a look at what our heart is like. Have a look at chapter 14, verse 11, and what God says to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I performed among them? This is God talking to Moses, saying, what do I have to do to make this bunch of people respect me? Um, Let me show you a bit more context. So you take the big step back, the big wide um, camera look at this. Back in the book of Exodus, that's where God takes the people out of Egypt, the people of Israel, makes them his people, gathers them in chapter 19 around Mount Sinai and speaks to them. And then you come to Leviticus, where you get these detailed instructions of how God wants this people that he's redeemed, how he wants his redeemed people to live, and in particular, how they should atone for their sin. And then you come to Numbers. The first 10 chapters of Numbers show how God prepares his nation to march to the promised land. And you saw how the way they camp, the way everything's done, God is at the heart, at the center of this people. God is the one that's leading them. Their whole existence is built around God. Then in chapters 10 to 12, you see the way that they um, completed their trip to the border of the land of Canaan, the land that he's promised to to Abraham, and how they grumbled along the way, but they made it. And now here in chapter 13, the people prepare to enter the land. As Rodney pointed out, in chapter 13, verse 1, they send spies ahead to spy out the land, to see what's in there. In 13, verses 3 to 15, They have the name of each spy. There's someone from each of the tribes, representative of each of the tribes. In verses 16 to 25, we're told what they saw, what they found. But look what happens when they come back. Look at 13 verse 27. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. It's exactly like you told us it would be. It is fantastic in there, just as expected. But then verse 28 But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. That's scary. Caleb speaks up to say God will be with them. He will let them have this land. He will help them get this land. But he's shouted down by all the others. They sow the seed of doubt. 
they start spreading a lie. And their inability to trust God, it's contagious. So if you jump down to verse 32. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. There it is, the seed of doubt planted, and it spreads. Speculation is is rife. And what happens? Well, you guessed it. The people, they do what they do. They complain. So 14 verse 1, they weep aloud. 14 verse 2, they grumble against Moses and Aaron. 14 verse 3, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Won't we, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And then in verses 5 to 9, it is only Joshua and Caleb. Of the 12 spies that went into the land, it's only the two who stand up and say, no, 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 God will be with us. We've got God on our side. And they're the only two voices. And how do the people respond? Look at 14 verse 10. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. These people, they're so predisposed not to trust God, they'll listen to a lie and a false report. They'll speculate. And they'll even want to kill the two people who are speaking truth. That's the context of our verse in verse 11. That's why God says to Moses in verse 11, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe me in spite of the miraculous signs I performed among them? Like, how are these people so hard-hearted? How can they forget everything that God has done for them to this point? He's still, you know, dropping food out of the sky for them every day. Why can't they just trust God? How can they be so quick to turn their back on God? But it gets worse. Look at 14 verse 12. God says he's going to wipe out everyone. Start afresh, start new with Moses. God's had enough. And then in 14 verse 13, Moses appeals to God. You can see the complaint pattern that I showed you a couple of weeks back. 14 verse 13, um, Moses appeals to God to forgive the people and God does show them mercy. But at the same time, God says he'll make these Israelites wander in the desert for another 40 years until a whole generation of them have died. You know, they did the census, they counted all those um, over age 20 and so on until that lot have all died. And then the next generation will get to enter the land. So if you look at um, verse 20, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will see it. Um, Remember back in 14 verse 2, the people accused God of abandoning them. They said it would have been better for us to die in Egypt or in the desert. Well, that's what will happen if you look at verse 28. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do the very thing they, um, I heard them you say. Verse 29, in this wilderness your bodies will fall, every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephna, 
and Joshua, son of Nun. As for you children that you said as for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness, your children will be shepherds here for forty years, suffering for your unfaithfulness, until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For forty years, one year for each of the forty days you explore the land, you will suffer for your sins. And know it is like what it is like to have me against you. And then in verse 37, um, the men who started this, the spies who started this, um, they were struck down. And with all that in mind, it's fairly serious stuff. With all that in mind, the next move of the people shows just how deceitfully twisted their hearts are. So God, God has punished them. He said, you will not enter this land. It's your kids who will get to enter. I mean, there's no you know, ambiguity about this. And yet look at verse 39. Um, when Moses reported this to the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, Now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. God's just said they won't enter. They're still, still not listening. And of course, it ends in a horrible mess. But how obstinate are they? Why don't they just get it? I mean, you look at that, you think, Really? And sure enough, they attempt to fight their way into the land without God, and they're soundly defeated. So you're looking at these people, you're reading about these people, it seems like a long time ago, a long way away, but focus on their hearts. Never underestimate the ability of the human heart to disobey God. Never underestimate the capacity of our hearts to disobey God, to twist God's good purposes, to selfishly live for ourselves despite what God has planned. Remember the warning back in Hebrews? Don't do what these people did. Don't fall for sin's deceitfulness. And then as you read on in Numbers, there's more. We're not going to look at chapters 15 to 19, but as you read on through, there's a whole heap of stuff there that talks about what happened during those 40 years And the people, they continued to rebel, they continued to complain, they continued to challenge Moses to disregard God. Even as they were serving out their punishment, they still continued to. Don't ever underestimate the hardness of the human heart, the capacity we have to obstinately blunder on, blind and oblivious to the wrong that we're doing, or maybe willfully ignorant. So this part of the Bible, it shows the human heart. It's the human heart which as you look through Hebrews, warns us, it's in us as well. The same desires. We need to be, as we look at this part of the Bible, need to be reminded of what we're capable of and and the way we can even lie to ourselves as we ignore God and live our own way. So that's the first thing to gain from reading this part of God's word. Never underestimate the hardness of our hearts. The second thing is to never underestimate um, God's goodness. God's justness and God's mercy. So come back to chapter 14. Look at how Moses appeals to God when God wants to destroy all of Israel. Moses does this thing that's in the complaint sequence. He cries out to God on their behalf. Um, If you look at 14 verse 13, Moses starts by saying, what will the other nations think of you, God, if you do this to the people that you saved, that you made for yourself? Um, And then you come down to, to 14 verse 18. 
The Lord will, um, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's saying God is just. We know that. God knows how to judge and how to punish, but he also abounds in mercy. And so it goes on in verse 19. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And so in 14 verse 20, God hears and God does forgive. Yet he judges, but at the same time he shows incredible mercy and he's faithful to his promises to Abraham. Um, God presses ahead with his plan to establish his people in his place under his rule and moves this rebellious bunch of people around in the desert and finally gets them to the land of Canaan. Don't ever underestimate the goodness of our great God. And so as you read this part of the Bible, yeah, you see God's character, you see his persistence, you see his faithfulness, you see his justice, and you see his mercy and his love. The very same qualities which, as you keep reading in the Bible, will lead to God sending his son to die for us, which we just remembered as we shared communion. So as you read about the nation of Israel, yeah, you're reading the story of God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise that he will bless all nations through the Israelites, which he does, ultimately through Jesus, the perfect Israelite. God is good, God is patient, God is kind, and as we come to terms with the state of our hearts, it drives you back to God's mercy. Um, Never underestimate the hardness of our hearts and never underestimate the goodness of our great God. So come back to Hebrews as we put all the pieces back together again. In Hebrews chapter 3, the writer, he recalls this situation back in Numbers 13 and 14 when Israel failed to enter the land, when they failed to enjoy the rest that God has promised. And the writer of Hebrews goes through the Psalms and says, God is still offering rest. As we read um, Numbers as Christians, we read with heaven in mind. God is still holding out the offer of rest in heaven with him. Um, The writer says, don't miss out like the Israelites did back then in Canaan. Don't fail to trust God like they did. And so if you pick it up back in Hebrews 3 verse 7, he says, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, Their hearts are always going astray, and they've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by deceitfulness. We need to understand the seriousness of sin and the serious state of our human hearts. We need to encourage each other to keep trusting God. We have this part we can play for each other. It's there in verse 13, encouraging each other. We want to be like Joshua and Caleb who stood up for the truth and stood out for the truth, even though they were in the minority. They stuck with it. So as you read Numbers 14 through the lens of Hebrews 3, yeah, it shows us the state of our hearts. And so the question is, how is your heart? If I were the, you know, spiritual optometrist, what would I see looking at your heart? Are there hardened arteries maybe? Is it a bit off colour in there because of an unhealthy diet or lack of exercise? Or is everything you know, clear and healthy? 
if you are allowing your heart to be hardened against God, well, hear the warning. Don't just let things go on unchanged. Take action. Firstly, throw yourself at God's mercy. And secondly, put preventative measures in place. And I think it's that second part where we can help each other. It's very difficult to change yourself, isn't it? We have to let God do that. But then there's also the part that we each play in encouraging each other. We need help from others. So if you look at verse 13 of Hebrews 3 again, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Um, what we've looked at in, in Numbers 14, it, it's the heart of the book. It shows you the heart of everything there. It points to the way Israel failed to enter the land of Canaan um, and looks at the way God punishes them for that. And as we read that part of the Bible through the lens of Hebrews 3, we see the warning. Don't do that. Don't behave like that. Never underestimate the hardness of our hearts, but also never underestimate the goodness of God who's willing to forgive us. I mean, you can't be more willing than sending Jesus to die for us. And we're reminded yet again in verse 13 of Hebrews 3 of the important place we have for each other, encouraging each other, spurring each other to keep living for Jesus, trusting and obeying him. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we know that you are slow to anger and abounding in love. And in accordance with your great love, we ask that you would please forgive us through Jesus' death in our place. Father, we pray that you would be at work in us, softening our hearts. Give us hearts that trust you, want to obey you, and want to live for you. And Father God, please help us as a church to help each other in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.